Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Supervalue Insurance. Driving value that matters on car, home and travel insurance. Now that's sound. Well, Kate Garraway presents her daily show on Smooth Radio and she also hosts Good Morning Britain on ITV. She's known for her energy and her empathy with her guests and she's the consummate professional broadcaster. But Kate Garraway's world changed utterly in March 2020, only a few months after she left the jungle and I'm a Celebrity to rejoin her husband Derek and her two children, Darcy and Billy. Derek contracted COVID. He got very, very sick with it. He was in a coma for months. He was in hospital for over a year. He's home now, but he requires constant care. Kate has written about Derek and how she has adapted to his care in her latest book, The Strength of Love. Good morning, Kate Garraway. Well, good morning to you. Thank you very much for that introduction. I love the idea that I'm a consummate professional. You may not think that by the end of this, but thank you very much indeed. You definitely are. Kate, would you do me a favour for my listeners here in Ireland who might not know everything about your story and Derek's. First of all, tell us about Derek, who he is and what he used to work at. So Derek had a little bit of mini fame long before I knew him because he was part of that gang along with Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair in the, in 1997 and the years before it. He'd had a long time working within the Labour Party and um, was part of that kind of halcyon time of hope for those that support Labour when they first came into power in 97. And then um, had a breakdown, actually, for various different reasons. And, you know, I think there were challenges uh, in terms of seeing ambition through and all of those things. And went and retrained as a psychologist. And when he, uh, at Berkeley in San Francisco, and when he returned to the UK, sort of in 2003, 2004, I met him then as a psychologist. And he would always say to me, what I was trying to do in politics for the country, I now do it one by one as an individual. And um, we are very different. Um, I am probably, you know, one of my rather home counties. Uh, and he was professionally northern. I had a very strong Lancashire accent and um, was loud, was super loud and opinionated and lots of fun. So, Kate, bring us back to the early mm. days um, of Derek's illness. How quickly yeah. did it progress And what happened when he was hospitalised? So it's hard to remember back, isn't it, really? This was March 2020, a couple of weeks before in um, Britain we went into lockdown. And it was still very much you are at risk of possibly having COVID if you have a temperature or a cough. If you have much else, please don't turn up at hospital because we're swapped, was the message. And Derek didn't have those symptoms. So what he had was a blistering headache, overwhelming fatigue and dizziness, which was slightly confused by the fact that he was on painkillers for a shoulder operation that had been cancelled because of things being cancelled for COVID. We possibly, and of course I lie awake at night wondering if anything could have been different, we possibly missed the fact that it was COVID. Eventually, we're told to call an ambulance. He was rushed into hospital and um, it progressed within a matter of a week into him going into the coma and then telling us that he was more than likely going to die. Um, During his eight, nine months in the coma, 
the inflammation we now know from COVID ran through his brain. And of course, this is what we know really about those suffering from COVID. The brain fog, all those things are still hard for the medical world to get their head around. But we now know that when you breathe a virus in, it's a very easy process for it to go into the brain to a greater or lesser extent. And Derek was the first person for whom there were people that miserably had strokes. And of course, there were many, many thousands that lost their lives. So very lucky that he was the first person for whom when he they tried to get him out of a coma, they realized something was very amiss. And it, the virus had ran through his brain, through his nerves. Um, led to holes in his heart and his liver, and he, from top to toe, had been wrecked by COVID. So since then, um, in early 21, it has been really a journey of learning with the medical profession about what can be done and adjusting to somebody who's gone from that person I described to somebody that is still paralysed, uh, has very little ability to speak. It's one word in a whisper. And learning how much of the old Derek is still there, which it is, in fleeting moments all the time. The other day, we actually heard him speak with his accent, which was overwhelmingly wonderful, um, because that really felt great, because in the whisper, you couldn't tell. And how much is lost, and how we as a family, the two children and myself, and of course his wider family, uh, adjust. And when I sort of sat down to write the book, um, I realized that through no choice of anyone, but through an incredible amount of love and support from everyone, Derek's journey had become sort of weirdly associated with what we've all been going through. I think during the pandemic, if you were lucky enough to have not lost your life or be directly grieving from someone who had, you did feel as though if you could get through this, it was going to be probably one of the worst things, at least for a generation, we'd all had to face. And then we came out to be whacked over the head again and again with economic crisis, with all sorts of things, just when there seemed to be so many miracles, the vaccine, the treatments, the things that allowed us to try and resume our lives. And so weirdly, when he got sick, he came to represent this, this sort of strange fight that we're all having in isolation. And then since he's come home, a lot of people feel, and it's wonderful that they do, that the sort of our battle to try and adjust to a new normal is representative of what we're all doing. And in Britain, I know your story is incredibly well known, Kate. You're very well known. You've made a couple of documentaries. But when you brought him home, it was obviously Mm. a huge moment for you and your son and daughter. But how difficult has that been? And how aware do you believe Derek is of his illness and his condition? Well, let's come to the last one first. I think torturously aware. So when you're sitting with him in the morning, you know, there's this horrible moment uh, when I'm not on UP and I am at home. You you see him sort of wake up and there's almost like this ghost-like flicker in the eyes where you, I wonder if he is in his dreams being himself with all those passions and hopes and excitements that the fullest life you hope for you can live. And then it's like you sort of see this crushing blow as 
he wakes up and the sort of horror descends that he is immobile, that he can't speak, that he is kind of hidden behind this bog that COVID has left him in. And then our challenge and his challenge is to sort of each day haul him up like an anchor from the deep as much as we can um, to sort of have the fullest life he can. And last year, Derek spent pretty much all of the year in and out of hospital. He went back into hospital with sepsis in the summer of last year and he had several operations to try and free up some of the contractions that COVID had left him with. So, you know, it's a strange thing where on one level you're thinking we're home, we couldn't be more grateful and we know so many have lost people, but also we're still on that, on the precipice of which infection, what is going to happen next that might take him from us. But also not wanting to make the children and Derek and all of us feel like we're living on a hospital ward, you know, because you have to create, they've got to grow up, they've, you know, it's been three and a half years now and Darcy's gone from a, you know, somebody who thought she was 21, but actually she was 13, to a 17-year-old woman charging towards her A-levels and looking like uh, a young woman. And, and that is a big chunk of life to have missed from all the closeness they had with their dad. And they it's amazing watching them, you know, reform that. And children are brilliant at that. And I guess it's all the emotions you go through on that journey. And there was a very moving interview with you actually, Kate, in the Sunday Times magazine recently talking about all you've been through. So how Mm. do you stay strong? Because you are obviously his carer now, as well as everything else, his his wife. But how, how how are you coping? Well, and I should say, by the way, that I do have support. You know, we have incredible nurses and coming and going and all sorts of people. So I'm not awake 24 hours a day. But there are people, Miriam, you know, there are people who are literally on their own caring for people. And I take my hat off to them and I think more should be fought to help them. But in terms of staying strong, I don't know if I am that strong. And I did at the end of last year have a heart scare. Um, which meant that at the early hours of the morning I had to be rushed uh, to hospital, didn't go on air on Good Morning Britain. And I still, it isn't entirely clear what that was, um, but it was a heart event, whether it was angina or whether it was some kind of stress-related effect. But that was a wake-up call for me because when you are in a situation where somebody might live or die, and that goes on. I think we're all, I, I talk about it in the book, adrenaline, adrenaline being a kind of frenemy, because on one level, adrenaline is, gives you superpowers. But over a sustained period, it does start to affect the way you think and the way um, your body operates. You're telling your body to be in a state of emergency all the time. So I've had to try and relearn the way I approach things and, you know, and manage the sort of negative spiral of thoughts you can have, you know. So so Carol will say, oh, with temperature spiking. So immediately I'm going through a checklist in my mind of what we do and who we call and where we go. And you're rushing to the nth degree, which is, is it a recurrence of sepsis? Are we on our way to intensive care? Or is it you know, something which we need to be alive to and aware of, but actually also 
um, is manageable. And you and so I'm trying to sort of not jump to conclusions and use lots of different strategies. And one of the reasons why I called it Strength of Love is because obviously I believe that Derek's love for the children and for us has powered him to get through every day in pain and discomfort. And our love for him too, hopefully, keeps us going. But also because I think actually love is such a powerful force, whether it's romantic or friendship or paternal or strangers in the street. And also being grateful, because I know there are so many people that would give their eye teeth to have somebody that survived COVID or survived another illness to have the chance to care for them. So I think that drives you on too. Yeah, and you also, Kate, you spend a huge amount of your time fighting the system. I know he was brilliantly Mm. treated when he was in hospital, but going Mm. home is very different. You know, you're trying to get the best care you can for Derek. But you are aware, Mm. I know, that you have a voice that other people may not have. I mean, how hard is it to get all the backup care you actually need? I think the system is broken. I'm going to be that brutal. And it's not through any individual's fault. It's not even, I don't think, the fault of the administrators. Very often we we celebrate carers, we celebrate nurses, we celebrate doctors and all health workers and staff. And we absolutely should because they keep everything going. But even those who are trying to assess and administrate are fighting against a system where you just feel at every stage, and I think of myself as pretty scrappy and pretty alert and pretty able. And if I find it feels like I'm wading through Blumange, not knowing where I'm going, then I cannot imagine what it's like if you're, you know, older, trying to look after another older person in your life or somebody that's on their own. I just don't know where you would begin. And I think we do have to do something about it. It's as though the system that was designed to catch you when you fall feels like it's trying to catch you out. And you spend so much of your time trying to navigate way through it, find yourself sort of debating slash arguing with good people who just want to do their best to try and get some clarity. It just all feels wrong. It feels, so, it feels morally wrong that we, you know, we're all going to need care at some point in our life. If we're lucky, mm-hmm. it'll be at the end of our life after a full life. If we're unlucky, it could be when we're 16 years old and we stepped out in front of a bus. You know, it, it will happen to us at some point or possibly it will be when... Um, we will find ourselves caring for someone else. And I don't think anybody truly understands it. And I'm guilty of this too, until you're in it. And somehow we've got to try and have that debate and more, really, without anger, without blame, without party politics, because it is the fundamental of everything, really. If you get how we support people when they need it most right, then everything else, What are your realistic hopes, Kate, now for Derek? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, your book now, which is such an interesting read, The Strength of Love, but you'd written a book before and that was a lot about hope. I mean, has that changed from when you first brought him out of hospital? Did you have more hope? Has that changed along the way? And how much could he, might he recover? I still fundamentally believe in the power of hope. And the power of hope I was talking about there is not necessarily a wish 
hope is a much more powerful force in my mind, just as love it, that it is about not conceding to the darkness, really. And I think that's when you have hope. As regards Derek's actual condition, we still have no clear diagnosis. And from that, obviously, we know it was a result of COVID. But in terms of what it looks like is very new for the medical profession. There is no established trajectory. I remember a specialist saying to me quite early on, nobody wants to get sick, but if you do get sick, get sick with with something that people have been studying and working on for at least 10 to 50 years. Don't do something new because everybody is playing catch-up. Now, of course, that's not great, but on the other hand, it also means that even the most negative predictions could be wrong too. So, um, you know, we we don't know. We do. I do still have hope. What I do know now is it's going to take a long time. So when he first came home from hospital, we had no idea whether he would be able to stay at home or whether he would go straight back in. He has had to go in with other things, but we didn't know whether he would be, he would make it or live or anything like that. We're, and we're still in a precarious place, but we also know that he's not going to wake up one day and say, what the heck happened there? That was an odd period. You know, this is going to be a long, slow climb, um, hopefully up. Um, but sometimes it does feel a little bit like it's life on the roller coaster, isn't it? Which we all live. And what I think we would all love is if you, you know something's a struggle, but you'd like to feel that with each step you were going up the rung of a ladder, whereas sometimes it can feel like you're sort of jumping from stepping stones, not actually knowing whether you're going forward or back in a big fog. So it definitely, when I look back to a year ago, I can see that Derek has made progress, but I can also see that other things are more of a struggle. So it's not a very good answer for you, that, Miriam, is there? I completely still have hope. I completely still feel as though everything we're doing isn't hopeless uh, and everything he is doing isn't hopeless. But actually, I think what we're trying to do is think of life as a, a collection of moments. And if we can have more good ones in a day than bad, then that's winning. Is it lonely for you sometimes, Kate? I mean, you're there, you're minding and loving Derek, you're minding and protecting and loving your two children. But what about you? I mean, I suppose the man you married is still there, but he's different. Is it lonely? Oh, yes. I think caring generally is incredibly lonely and people feel very guilty about talking about that. And I feel very guilty about saying that I have felt very lonely as well because you think that, you know, you're, the person's there, you're, uh, you're actually alone very rarely, but actually it's very lonely. And if you are caring for somebody one-to-one without those things, then you're practically very isolated because you're living their life with all the constraints it has. But actually, emotionally, I think it can be very lonely because in a way, I've watched it in the children that you can sometimes feel that they're in each moment, there's a huge surge of hope when he does something which, you know, feels like he's really connecting with us or it's a flash of the old Derek. And in the next minute, it's absent again. It's almost like little tiny stabs of grief, actually. And I, I again, don't really feel 
I should use that word because there are people listening to you right now that are living with the rawness of bereavement. And I don't want to belittle that, the horror of that. But there are little mini griefs all the time when you think and then you go again. And that is quite lonely making. But it's, you know, it's an honour, I think, that Derek trusts me to care for him and uh, be his advocate in the world. And final story, the Elton John story, which I think is... <laughs> tell us about that. The ultimate. I mean, it's just madness, isn't it, really? It's absolute madness. I mean, his friend was very sick um, in hospital in L.A., and he was in L.A. at the time. And by a weird series of, you know, seven degrees removed, um, we had a mutual connection through the music industry and somebody I'd worked with before and he suddenly said well this is what they're doing for my friend and then he said let me get in touch with her so he got in touch with me and said can I help can we share information I was sharing information with him he was sharing it with me during those sort of dark days when nobody knew anything and um and because of that he felt invested and involved and actually Derek's always been a huge fan of, of Elton John's music as I think many of us are and, and we played it to him in the coma and then played it subsequently you know when, when he was coming round and he's watched the movie many times and he said wouldn't it be miraculous and wonderful if one day if I ever get back on my tour um, he could come and see him and we did it and even on the day um, he seemed like he'd be too sick but he was determined and we all just thought let's do it so thanks to the brilliant people at the, at the uh, concert hall where he was playing and all those that supported us, we got there. He did get overwhelmed at one point and started to shake. So we took him outside, found a dark space, which is actually a disabled loo, and uh, turned the lights off and gradually sort of brought him down um, and said, you know, and thought, let's give, let's have a bit of peace and see where we are. And I said, listen. I don't think there's long to go, but is this it? Do you want to head out? He said, no, I'll go back. And just as we went back into the stadium, Elton, who was on stage, suddenly said, well, he'd been thanking lots of people important to him in his career. There are some people here tonight that I'm so pleased to hear. Derek Draper, Kate Garraway, and their children, Darcy and Billy, and they've been through so much. And then everybody started clapping and applauding. We started crying. Everyone around us started crying, all these people in the seats. And then he said, so I'm going to dedicate this to this. I won't let the sun go down on me, which, of course, makes me want to cry even telling you now, because how appropriate a song. And even though after that, he was absolutely exhausted and for days afterwards, you know, was completely wiped out. That night, when we eventually got him home and into bed, the last thing he whispered was, I won't let the sun go down on me. Mm. And that's when I thought, that's when you have to reach to do things because there's no, no such thing as no risk in life. You've just got to take, within reason, anything that brings joy. Well, Kate Garraway, you are a remarkable person. It's been a real privilege to talk to you this morning. Thank you for taking the time to do so. Your new book, and I note it's in the top 10 bestsellers today in the UK, The Strength of Love, Embracing an Uncertain Future with Resilience and Optimism, is a must read for people. It's published by Blink. I wish you, Kate and Derek, and your beautiful children, Dorothy and Billy, the very best. Thanks for taking the time to chat to me this morning. We'll take a break.